Good morning, church family. I am so glad that you are here today. We have a short list of announcements, surprisingly, and the one I want to draw your attention to is the Washington Conference Constituency Session. That's a mouthful. We have four people on here, which is Matt and Liz Rickaby, John Polity, and Myrtle Mitchell, who we are sending in as our delegates. And I'm reading this to you as the first reading. And we will have more and more of these as there are multiple uh, positions and meetings and boards. And so uh, keep looking out for readings of these in your bulletins. And next, I will draw your attention to the screen from Greetings from Finland. Wonderful thought. Greetings, and hello from the Parvis family here in Finland. We have had a wonderful fall and an early winter here in Helsinki. We've enjoyed the snow and survived the cold. We just wanted to wish our friends in Green Lake Church Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And in Finnish, Goodbye. And I will invite you next to get up and greet one another. And after, we'll have our opening hymn so you can stay standing.
One last announcement from Jana. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for coming for Christmas breakfast. And in tradition, we might be having second breakfast at the after church time. But when you come, make sure and pick up your dishes and look in the hallway. There's lots of dishes that have been left over the years, and we'd love it if you picked them up. Thank you, and Merry Christmas. Please uh, bow your heads with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Christmas season. We thank you for the reminder that you are with us and that you came here for us. And as we think about you today, we ask that your spirit would fill this place and fill our hearts and that we would be able to share that with others. In your name we pray, amen. The Christ Candle. God with us, love shine, your moment has come. In the dark of the womb you waited, bathed in the balm of the star, you rest. Into a world sorely in need of your light, you are born. When you knock on our door looking for a room, may we welcome you. Like the herald of your birth, call us to share your good news, first with those who are poor, excluded, and afraid. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot put it out. The love of heaven has come to earth. The call of Christ begins in a baby's cry. Listen and respond. We light the Christ candle. May it light the way.
Good morning. Today's offering is for youth-related services within the Washington Conference. I taught the youth class for several years. The divisions are a great way to, for generations to mix and to get acquainted, to learn together, which we certainly did. It was a wonderful experience. I recommend it. The kind that a church uh, community offers almost uniquely. This is, I'm sure, a good cause, deserving of our support, in a season when we are inundated by requests from different charities. They come on strong at the end of the year, maybe because it's a good time when people can assess their financial condition, having the Christmas spirit of giving, or maybe like the Fairchilds, you're trying to squeeze every dime of interest you can before getting that tax deduction. Our operating budget at Green Lake depends on people making regular donations through the year. I know I find monthly going on the website seems to work pretty well. But we also depend on that end-of-the-year extra giving. That just seems to be the rhythm around here. We're way behind so far, but uh, that's the rhythm. It's uncertain, but it seems to work. We also have a history here at Green Lake of about every five to ten years having a capital campaign. That's usually for something very expensive that's going to really advance the church. Examples of that, the best example, is the elevator. That was very expensive and controversial at the time. But it's hard to imagine operating this church without it now. Others were the expansion of the stage. The stage used to to come out uh, about to the end of the chair. Uh, And I can guarantee you, we would not be able to rent this church to a Sunday group if we still had that small stage. Um, The upgrade to the organ, we had a capital campaign to re-roof the church. And if you go back far enough, the education wing, everything east of the back wall. You know we're in a capital campaign because there's always a thermometer chart in the narthex. So that's your key. And we're doing pretty good. We're 70% there to the goal. And uh, we only have, we're we're hoping to wrap it up by the end of the year. Uh, But we will take pledges that can be paid off in 2024. We didn't expect this to be a year of a capital campaign. That wasn't the plan. But when the house next door, which we now call the Lake House, suddenly came on when the owners told us that they were planning to sell it after 60 years of being owned by that family. And they had repeatedly assured us that they they had no plans to ever sell that. So that was an opportunity. Um, The foundation board and the church board looked at that and decided, yeah, let's take the plunge. It's a miracle that we could even consider buying something like that. But we've had very generous donations through the years from people who really... uh, The Green Lake uh, Church is very important to them. 
contributions from everybody, and also the foundation has invested the money very wisely. So we are actually in the ballpark, but we just needed a little help from everybody. So maybe we can buy it, but should we? Why should we? A lot of reasons, uh, among the reasons that come to my mind, it's a solid home, almost on the lake. And there's many houses around here that we look at and say, oh, we could have bought that 10 years ago for this amount or five years ago for this amount. But, you know, we lost out on that. So it should be a good investment. It has a unique um, feature of two independent living units in the back of the property. So that is a perfect for the housing ministry, almost doubles the size. Um, and I can say, the housing ministry currently, including those, is currently completely full. Uh, our basement serves as an overflow, and I currently have a family of five from Milton Freewater in our basement. So I know that um, having from that experience how it's such a huge help to people in a difficult time that was offered, again, pretty uniquely by the Green Lake Church. And uh, it's, a it's a tremendous assistance to a large number of people. Buying this house also gives us control over any development that takes place on this block. And I think we all know what development means in Seattle. It's not always bad, but it's uh, not up to the standards that we've set. Um, and something important for me, the purchase of this house also strengthens the long-term finances of the church. For the inevitable lean years, when we will struggle to preserve our special congregation, we're hoping, always hoping to stay relevant in a changing world, but trying to preserve some of our unique culture. And that includes this spectacular building that we've inherited. The house itself is already being used for informal church-related events, and it's through uh, the future, the years in the future, when the congregates in those times are limited only by their imagination on how they can use this. As the nominal chair of this campaign, I want to thank you for that wonderful, for, because I know it's painful. We have a long list of people that have contributed, and I appreciate the sacrifice that's represented here. We're almost done, so let's find a way to get this done. And I'm going to conclude with a pledge, a personal pledge, that from now on, forever and ever, I will never again ask this congregation to donate money for real estate. I'm done. Thank you. The deacons would please rise. Almighty God, bless our offerings today as we give back but a small portion of the blessings that you have given us. Amen.
Good morning. Merry Christmas. Do you, does any one of you know what your name means? Strong. Strong. Okay, Andrew means strong. Anyone else? I know Grady and Mira, you're going to get your name listed later on today for the sermon. <laughs> anyone else know what their name means? No? Okay, so, you know, some people, and in some cultures, the name is really significant. It holds a lot of importance. And sometimes, like in our culture more, it's if we like the sound of it, we go with it. But it's just kind of fun sometimes to think about different names and the meanings of them. And I asked a few people, and Gumi, his full name, Gunmundur, is... Gudmundur <laughs> is God's helper. And mine, Danelle, comes from Daniel, and it's God is my judge. And I asked our organist, Doug, and his means black river or dark stream. Um, Katrina here is appropriately dressed in a nice white dress because her name means pure. And my husband over there... His name, Kevin, means handsome. (laughs) I agree. (laughs) And Myrtle, her name comes from a tree, the Myrtle. And it's an evergreen shrub that has medicinal properties. And it represents strength and victory. So it's kind of fun. So you can ask your parents to look up on Google what your name means. And some don't really mean anything, and that's okay too. But it's just kind of fun. Somebody, in the, when we were in the Philippines one year, an example of different cultures who name their children very literally, one man, his name was Kola Ulu. And do you know what that name means? So when he was born, and his mother named him Big Head. <laughs> so his name literally means Big Head. Um, so it's just kind of interesting to see different names and meanings, and you can ask your parents what your name might mean. And in the Bible, we have examples of meanings of names and how it's significant and how names even have changed and how people change their names based on the meaning. And so we're going to talk a little bit more about that today in the sermon. And... Yeah, so just think about names and the meanings they have, and you can put significance to it if you'd like to, and if not, that's fine too. Okay, thank you. You can get your blue buckets.
Almighty and most merciful God, we kneel and bow together for a communal prayer to offer thanksgiving for our manifold blessings and to ask for your help and guidance in our lives. This is the day in particular we have chosen to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. We are so grateful that he came to be among us to teach us how to live and to inspire us to be our best. Help us to learn from him how to navigate in an increasingly complex world where simple explanations and solutions are rare. Help us to be a community where, through our shared beliefs, we can count on each other for support in all its forms. We pray especially today for the Chetilawadas and the Van Fossens, for Dorothy and Russell, Barry and Anne, Jody and Erlen, Eileen and Tege, and Galen. Lord, let us leave here today with a Christmas song in our hearts and a feeling of promise for the world anew. Amen. The Old Testament reading is from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 to 7. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. Thanks be to God.
The New Testament reading is from Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. May the Lord bless the hearing of the word. Those of you who are parents, do you remember the moments in time before the actual pregnancy happened? For us, there was a lot of reflection, contemplation. I remember Danelle even getting the little baby clothes, you know, those little tiny outfits that our children will wear, and laying them all out. And we imagined, what is this kid going to look like? We spent a lot of time to that end. The other thing that we contemplated, and Danelle spent a lot of time on this, was what will we name this child? I'm going to show you a picture now of one of them on the day of the birth. I guess both of them are there now. That's little baby Mira and Grady as he first saw Mira in the hospital. This was in Walla Walla about seven years ago, come January. And on the day that she was born, I was reflecting on the name Mira, and what it means. And I want to share a little bit with what I posted as this little girl was born. Mira is a feminine name with varying meanings. In the Romance languages, it's related to the Latin words for wonder and wonderful. In the various Slovak languages, it means peace. In the Albanian language, it means goodness or kindness. In Sanskrit, it means ocean, sea, limit, or boundary. In Hebrew, it is a derivative of Miriam, or the female equivalent of Mir, meaning light. And so as I reflected on that, I prayed a blessing over her, and I wrote this. May this little girl have a curious mind that wonders about the world and seeks a wonderful God. May she, in a chaotic world, be a beacon of peace, goodness, and kindness. May she experience God's grace and know there is no limit or boundary to God's love. May she be a person that lets her light shine in an incredibly dark world. For those of you that may be wondering, this little boy, Grady in this picture, who's curious, what is this new thing that's been inserted into our environment? How will life change? His name, Grady, is an Irish name and because our family background, McGill, is Scottish and Irish, and his name means the descendant of the noble one. Names don't always carry significance in our culture today, but in the Bible, they were deeply significant. A name, biblically speaking, is often connected to character. Earlier this year, we did a whole series on the character of God, And it's based off this passage in Exodus where Moses wanted to know what God is like. He wanted to see God. And he said, show me your glory. And so God said, stand behind this rock and I will pass before you. And God, in his own words, expressed what he is like. And I'll I'll put it on the screen here now. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, 
the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. That last part, and in the Character of God series, I, I, I talked on this, but it can be stressed because it's also part of the commandments. You might remember the third commandment says, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Let's reflect on that here just briefly. What does it mean to take the name of the Lord in vain? The other irony, right before we talk about that, is in the context of Moses receiving literally the commandments from God written on stone, the Israelites were wondering where Moses was, and they made for themselves a golden calf, and they break all three of the first commandments while they were being written by God on stone. You shall not have any other gods before me. Do not bow down or worship them. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. While God is writing the commandments, they're breaking the first three. But the thing that I really want to stress in this talk today is taking the name of the Lord in vain goes so much deeper than just the words that we express. It doesn't mean to just literally, you know, almost flippantly speak to it, although it could encompass that. It's much deeper. Now, The commandment has nothing to do with the proper pronunciation of God's name. And you may have had the experience that I have had um, with Jehovah's Witnesses, for instance. They say that the proper name for God is Jehovah. And they don't pray with non-Jehovah's Witnesses because they believe other Christians are not worshiping God in the right way and do not acknowledge him by his proper name. Do they have that right? Have all denominations become flippant about the name of God? The name is a common Latinized form of the Hebrew tetragrammaton. It's the four-letter name that is uh, transliterated as Yah. The divine name of God was increasingly regarded by the Hebrews of the Old Testament as being too sacred to be uttered. So the name was abbreviated. And over time, the actual longer definition of the name was lost sight of. And religious groups have been debating the true, real meaning of this word, the name, ever since. I think that is what the Jewish singer and songwriter Leonard Cohen was trying to express in his song, Hallelujah. He's a Jewish, um, not necessarily religious believer, But he's contemplating, very well aware of the debate. And in the song Hallelujah, he expresses it like this. You say, I took the name in vain. I don't even know the name. But if I did, well, really, what's it to you? There's a blaze of light in every word. It doesn't matter which you heard, the holy or the broken, hallelujah. The name of God is sacred because of what it represents. 
Hallelujah is the testimony to the transcendence of God. The prophet Isaiah had this epiphany of the holy. He was taken before the throne of God and he witnessed the power of the Almighty in vision. And all he could do was get down to his knees and proclaim, Woe unto me, for I am a man of unclean lips amongst the people of unclean lips. His response to the holy and the sacred was profound humility. It was awe mingled with fear at seeing the power of God. God wants us to have this picture. It's part of who he is. But God is not only the God of the holy and the sacred. God is with us in the brokenness of life as well. There are hundreds of names for God in the Bible, but one of my favorites for him is given to him by a slave and a foreigner. There's a lady in the Bible, and her name is Hagar. Her name literally means the forsaken one. Hagar finds herself in the middle of a crisis. She has been kicked out of her home, abandoned, and left to survive on her own, with only her young son still in her womb. She's weeping. It appears as if she's about to die. But in this crisis, God appears to her and he says, I see your pain. I have a plan for you. Even if other people don't see you, don't support you, or can't understand, God sees you. So when Hagar observed this, that she was seen, that she was understood, And even though she was abandoned by others, she was not abandoned by God. She gave God the first personal name that we have recorded in Scripture. And she says, this is the God who sees me, El Roy. And her son, growing in her belly, she names Ishmael. God hears. Even though even those, those who have been by, forsaken by family, the church, their friends, or community, have not been forsaken by God. He is the one who sees. He is the one who hears. And this is the first message that God gives to the Israelites after hundreds of years in slavery. Given to Moses, he says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering. I don't think God cares what we call him. We can call him Jehovah with our Jehovah's Witnesses friends, or we can call him El Roy with Hagar. He is the one who sees me. There are hundreds of names for God throughout the Bible. And each one carries deep significance. But I believe we take the name in vain if we police which one can and cannot be used while neglecting the truth of the life behind the name. Some years ago, Pastor Dwight Nelson, who preached from Andrews University Church, got into some controversy Because he had the audacity to say that the name Allah is a name for God. He said, 
Allah is the name of the living God. Allah is the God of the universe. And his sermon was titled, The Star is Still Rising Over Islam. He faced immediate backlash because some Christians didn't want their faith being equated to Islam. They viewed the name Allah as demonic. But Dwight's point, and I agree with him, is that God has many names. All of them are glimpses, a part of a larger mosaic. In the search for truth, it's important to not get so fixated on a particular one that we could turn a name into an idol. We make a tetragrammaton to protect the sacredness of the name. We refuse to pray with those who don't use the same name we do. I agree with Koan when he said, we at all could be accused of taking the name in vain at times. We will all have ups and downs in our spiritual pilgrimage. But in the end, even though it could all go wrong, we stand before the Lord of song with nothing on our tongue but hallelujah. In the end, we are told that God will give each one of us a new name. This is deeply significant to me because I think at the core of our existence is identity. Every one of us have our own vulnerabilities, insecurities. It starts at a young age. We want to know, do we fit in? How do people see me? Hagar has the epiphany. This is Elroy. This is the God who sees me, who knows me, who knows my challenges, who knows my shortcomings, and yet looks at me as one who is loved. So when the Bible says each one of us are given a new name, it comes from this place of knowing that God knows the best and the worst, everything that makes us us, and he doesn't condemn us. He uplifts us, and he speaks into our true value and identity, and he gives us that name that only we in our connection with God know. In our culture, One's name means little. Most often, merely, it's a way of identifying and distinguishing people. But an individual's name meant far more in ancient times. For instance, Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Names were carefully chosen in the Bible. And there's a couple of examples where the names come directly from God. I'm going to just list three of them here now. One is this man by the name of Jacob. Jacob was a twin, and he was second in the birth order. Birth order was huge throughout the Old Testament because it came with inheritance and the privilege of being firstborn son. And so the whole story kind of begins with this understanding. Jacob was second. Esau was first. But then Jacob plots with his own mother to take the birthright. And he he makes this, must have been a delicious pot of lentils. And to his older brother, he says, sell me your birthright. And the brother says, fine, done. But that didn't cover the bases. He needed his father to give him the blessing. 
So he plots with his mother. And we're told that Esau, his name, means hairy. He must have been a hairy man. So with his mother, he plots and he, he takes goat skins and he puts them on his arms because his, his dad is growing blind at this point. And he goes and he kills an animal, a goat. He, he makes the soup, the stew for his dad. And he says, Father, bless me. And his dad says, are you, are you Esau? And he lies. And he says, I am. And he gets this blessing. His name, Jacob, means deceiver. That's his identity. He, gets, he, he has to leave home after it's found out. And then he has this, this profound story in the Bible, this time of wrestling with God. And I want to, as a pastor, give you permission. I think the larger narrative of this is, out of the messiness, it doesn't have to be your ultimate identity. You're going to have questions. You're going to have doubts. You're not going to know always the path forward. But this man, Jacob, the deceiver, wrestled with God. And when he wrestled with God, he got a new name. His name was changed to Israel, which means prince of God. And then the rest of the biblical narrative focuses on the Israelites. People out of this identity, deceivers, become princes with God. Jacob's name changed, chosen by God, to Israel. Another name that was given directly by God is the story of John. And in the Bible, John is given his name directly by the angel Gabriel. And as you might recall, there's this, this pastor, this priest, his name is Zachariah. He has a wife named Elizabeth. And they're old. They haven't been able to have children. But then, as part of the prophecy, the destiny of this whole thing, they become pregnant. And the angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah and says, you will have a son. And Zechariah, as I read between the lines, he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I'm, I'm an old man. My wife's old too. This, how is this going to happen? Show to me, prove to me that this will be the case. It's powerful as you read this in Luke. Read it through this Christmas season. Gabriel says, I am Gabriel. Don't question it. The fact that I'm here talking to you is enough. As a sign, you will not be able to speak until your son is born. So then, Zechariah can't speak, and eventually, uh, as part of the whole destiny of it all, he's given, when John's about to be born, a parchment, and they want to know what's his name, and he writes out, his name is John. Chosen to be the one who will prepare the way of the Messiah. And that brings us up to the third and final name chosen by God. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 1. But before we go there, and as I read this passage, Jesus, name chosen, also given by Gabriel, the Bible sets this up by talking about genealogy. And if you read the Bible through in a year, there's a couple of sections that sometimes it's really tempting to just skip over. There's, you know, let's be honest, Leviticus can be one of those areas. The other times when there are these, these genealogies that go on for a couple of chapters, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begot so-and-so, you're like, ah, let's, let's skip that part. I want to read just the first part of it, 
and then get to our passage. We'll be reading in Matthew 1, 18 through 23. But notice how the genealogy begins in Matthew chapter 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. So that's the first of this long line. And then in verse 16, it says, uh, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Christ. And I'll put it up if we have it here now. Yeah, there we go. Um, Matthew 1, and starting in verse 18. Here's the story. Gabriel comes, and here's what the narrative says. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly as he considered this. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is a lot for Joseph to take in. It would take an angel. This lady that you're engaged to becomes pregnant, and she says, this... It was the Holy Spirit. You would need to have the confirmation from an angel that would say the same thing to you, or else it would be too much, too much to believe. But his name shall be called Jesus because he will save their people from their sins. Like many of you, I have been reflecting on this story of the incarnation, and I've always appreciated the words in the lyrics from Joy Williams in her song, Here With Us. She says, It's still a mystery to me how the hands of God could be so small, how tiny fingers reaching in the night were the very hands that measured the sky. It's still a mystery to me how his infant's eyes have seen the dawn of time, how his ears have heard an angel's symphony, but still Mary had to rock her Savior to sleep. Rachel Hald Evans reflected on this. At the same time, she was pregnant and a mother herself, and she put it in her own words. Perhaps it's because I'm neck deep in a season of motherhood and caretaking that I am more aware than ever of the startling and profound reality that I am a Christian not because of anything I've done, but because a teenage girl living in occupied Palestine at one of the most dangerous moments in history said, yes, yes to God, yes to a wholehearted call she could not possibly understand, yes to vulnerability in the face of societal judgment, yes to the considerable risk of pregnancy and childbirth, yes to clogged milk ducts and spit up in her hair and hundreds of -of middle-of-the-night feedings, Yes, to scary fevers and learning as you go and 
all the first century equivalents of bad advice from WebMD. Yes, to vision for herself and her little boy of a mission that would bring down rulers and lift up the humble, that would turn away the rich and fill the hungry with good things, that would scatter the proud and gather the lowly. Yes, to a life that came with no guarantees of her safety or her son's. I know that Christians are supposed to be Easter people. We are supposed to favor the story of the resurrection, which reminds us that death is never the end of God's story. Yet, I have never found the story even half as compelling as the story of the incarnation. It's nearly impossible to believe God shrinking down to the size of a zygote implanted in the soft lining of a woman's womb, God growing fingers and toes, God kicking and hiccuping in utero, God inching down the birth canal and entering the world covered in blood, perhaps into the steady waiting arms of a midwife, God crying out in hunger, God reaching for his mother's breasts, God totally relaxed, eyes closed, his chubby little arms raised over his head in a posture of complete trust, God resting in his mother's lap. Rachel Held Evans says, On the days and nights when I believe this story that we call Christianity, I cannot entirely make sense of the storyline. God trusted God's very self totally and completely and in full bodily form to the care of a woman. God needed a woman for survival. Before Jesus fed us with the bread and the wine, the body and the blood, Jesus himself needed to be fed by a woman. He needed a woman to say, this is my body given for you. I think that is why, of all the names given to God, my favorite comes when Jesus fulfilled the prophecy spoken by Isaiah. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and we will call him Emmanuel, God with us. This is the message. This is the message of the season. We can get in debates about which name, which religion, which tradition is the best. It's understandable. It's human. But when it comes down to it, the most important thing that we can reflect on is that God came to be with, if, with us. This is the sacred. This is the holy. This is what we are called to do as Christians, to represent the hands and feet, to be the light. His name will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He is Emmanuel, God with us. This is the reflection. This is my prayer for all of us. Amen.
Before the prayer, I also want to invite you all to After Church Snack, which is a continuation of the wonderful breakfast that we had downstairs. It'll be in the fireside room just off the hall, I believe. Downstairs. It'll be downstairs still. Let's pray together. Dear God in heaven, I pray a special blessing on those members that are watching from home this morning. As the Christmas season continues and as we gather together with family and friends, I pray for your peace, for your joy, for your comfort. I'm thankful that your name is Jesus and that you promise to forgive us of our shortcomings and our sins. Help us to be light, to be goodness, to be good news to those that we also come in contact with, remembering that this was the example you gave. You are Emmanuel, God with us. Bless us now, we pray in your name. Amen.